Pray with me. Father, help us now in this moment to behold Your Son in Numbers 25 and help us just like You do to delight in Him. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So our passage this morning is Numbers 25. And while you turn there, I'll just say this sermon's title is The Redeemer in the First Testament. That is, the Old Testament. That's Genesis through Malachi. And rather than trying to cover all of that ground, Genesis through Malachi in one sermon, we're just going to this one text, Numbers 25, and we're going to attempt by the Lord's grace to look at Christ and hope that He'll change us into His image. I'll read all of Numbers 25. Hear the word of the Lord. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. So a bit of background to this text. In Numbers 22-25, through we see an episode uh, involving Balak, who's the king of Moab, and Balaam. Israel had just destroyed the Amorites. And when I say destroyed, 
you can go read the text. They really destroyed the Amorites. Balak had seen the destruction that the Lord was bringing upon the enemies of Israel. And according to Numbers 22.3, quote, Moab was in great dread of Israel. So Balak calls on Balaam. Balaam is a man who's uh, something of a false and godless prophet. But Balak calls on Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel. And he hopes that in doing so that uh, he'll be able to drive them from the land of Moab. Balaam. Now you've heard probably this story of Balaam and the donkey, right? The donkey speaks to Balaam. Why have you hit me these three times? But after that happens, he sees the angel of the Lord. He encounters him. So after seeing the angel of the Lord, Balaam gives four oracles from God himself, all of which, contrary to Balak's purpose in calling upon him in the first place, bless Israel and, in effect or explicitly, curse Balak and Moab. Balak is naturally angry with Balaam in the two-part ways at the end of chapter 24. And in chapter 25, we see the daughters of Moab enticing Israel to sin. Now, by that, what I don't mean is, oh, poor Israelite men who had no clue what they were doing and were enticed to sin. No, no, no. They gladly, for sinful sexual pleasure, not only yoked themselves to Gentile women, which God had explicitly commanded them not to do, but also yoked themselves to their false gods, which Numbers 31 calls treacherous. It says, they dealt, Israel dealt in so doing all of that treacherously with the Lord. Now, what we're not explicitly told in Numbers uh, 22 through 25, but we're told in a number of other portions of Scripture, is that it's Balaam, who had just blessed Israel, speaking the words of God, as it were, who entices the Moabites to go uh, cause the men of Israel and trouble them in this way to cause them to sin. So Balaam blesses the people of Israel and then advises Balak and uh, these people to go entice the men of Israel to sin. Charles Simeon said regarding that fact, Satan is incessant in his endeavors to destroy the people of God. And if one device fail, he has recourse to another. So cursing the Israelites would not work, so they devise another way to trouble Israel. So that's just some background for our text. Now, one quick plea before we get into the meat of the sermon. All right, And the plea is this. You really ought to familiarize yourself very well with these chapters. Numbers 22 through 31. 31 is where Balaam is eventually killed. They play something of a major role in your Bible. The account in Numbers 25 is explicitly mentioned in Deuteronomy, Joshua, Nehemiah, Micah, 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation and is alluded to in a number of other places. So get there. Meet with the Lord there. And we're going to barely skim the surface in this message. So the hope is that this whets your appetite to go read Numbers 25 and meet with the Lord there on your own. And glory in Christ, who we'll see lots of in that text. We just heard a portion of Luke 24 read in our hearing. And it said that all of the Old Testament, or the First Testament, is about Christ. So Christ is the main character in Numbers 25. We say that a lot about all sorts of Old Testament texts at this church, but it's true. Christ is the main character in Numbers 25. Phineas existed just like you and I exist to display and show forth the greatness of Jesus Christ. And Phineas prefigures Christ. That's how he shows forth his greatness. 
He foreshadows Christ. And everything that we see uh, from Phineas in Numbers 25 is fulfilled in Christ. All right, so how does Phineas prefigure Christ? I see at least five ways in the text. I'm sure there are many more. Uh, but I'll list the five with at least one scripture reference that has something to say about how Christ fulfills that role. And we'll dwell briefly on the last two. So I've got five, I'll mention three, and a text, and then we'll uh, dwell a little bit on the last two. So how does Phineas prefigure Christ? First, like Christ, Phineas is violent toward sin and sinners. And I get that from verses 7 and 8 where it says, he rose and left the congregation, this is Phineas, took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. Kills them both. Violent towards sin and sinners. Christ fulfills this. We see a fulfillment of this in Christ in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He, that's Christ, will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So like Christ, Phineas is violent towards sin and sinners. Secondly, the second way that Phineas prefigures Christ. Like Christ... Phineas turns back the wrath of God. I get that from verse 11, which says, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. We see Christ, uh, we see a glimpse of Christ's fulfillment of this in Romans 5, 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. So like Christ, Phineas turns back the wrath of God. The third way uh, from our text that Phineas prefigures Christ. Like Christ, Phineas is jealous for God with the jealousy of God. That's verse 11. It said very explicitly, He was jealous with my jealousy among them. Listen with faith to John eight twenty-eight and 29. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Dial up Corey's sermon for the last phrase of this text. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So like Christ, Phineas is jealous for God with the jealousy of God. Those are just mentioned. There's so much to be had there. Another plea, 
Go get there. There's lots of Christ to be had in Numbers 25. Dwell on those truths on your own. And the final two ways. First, a perpetual or unending, forever, eternal priesthood is promised through Phineas in verse uh, 13, which says, And it shall be to him, that's Phineas, and to his descendants after him, the covenant of a perpetual priesthood. Christ fulfills this role fully and finally. He is, Christ is a priest perpetually in the house of God. And uh, this is where the sermon gets very explicitly adventy, right? We, we're, these are, this is an advent series of sermons that we're listening to. So this is very important because Christ's priesthood and his incarnation or his physical body are intimately tied together in the scripture. We're celebrating the fact that Christ was born. He became incarnate. He was born, literally, in order to fulfill this priestly role that we're going to talk about. So who is a priest and what does he do? Well, probably very simplistically, but here's the definition I'll give you. A priest is a man appointed by God to mediate between God and men. Listen to 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. through 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So you heard the link. Mediator. That's priestly role. There is one mediator between God and men. Christ, the priest, the mediator. And then the man, Christ Jesus. Christ is our mediator, our priest, and he is a man just like we are, though without sin. And a faithful high priest has to be able to identify with those whom he represents as mediator. Listen to Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We also know, all right, so Christ is our priest and he's our faithful high priest. We also know that he holds his priesthood perpetually, again, fulfilling Phineas's role in uh, Numbers 25. Now, Christ holding his priesthood perpetually. Here's Scripture. Hebrews 7, 23-25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, and this is glorious, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So here's application. Rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel, he has come. And he can save you forever because he is a priest forever. So, the promised perpetual priesthood given through Phineas. Fifthly and lastly, the ways that Phineas prefigures Christ. Like Christ, Phineas made atonement 
for the people of Israel. I get that also from verse 13, which very explicitly says that Phineas quote, made atonement for the people of Israel. Now we know that this atonement in Numbers 25 is not full and final. If it had been full and final, there'd be no need for all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament post Numbers 25. Phineas did not make full and final pardon for sin. But Christ, fulfilling this, put himself forward as a full and perfect sacrifice for sins. Listen to Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. This follows immediately on the heels of the text we just read. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. Jesus Christ came to this earth and took on flesh. His advent happened. He did so to offer himself as a sacrifice for sins. A perfect sacrifice. Again, dial up Corey's sermon that was fully pleasing to the Father. Now, as we celebrate Christ's Advent, and this isn't the end. You've heard two sermons today. There will be six more over the next three weeks, Lord willing. As we celebrate Christ's Advent, let us remember that He was born for a particular purpose. That is, to display the glory of God by living a perfect life, taking that righteousness to the cross, and dying, suffering the wrath of God as a sacrifice for sins, and to rise again from the dead. His coming was to accomplish the gospel and your salvation and mine. So, one very, very brief word of application. And it's really simple. It's nothing fancy. Worship Christ. Worship Him. Now. Do it tomorrow. Do it Thursday. Do it next Sunday as we gather for worship. Lord willing, you've been doing it already during this sermon and during Corey's sermon, during the singing and as we fellowship post-service. So, worship Christ. That is the application. Worship Him. He is our great high priest and He is our atonement for sin. So, worship Him for His advent. Alright. Now, what we're going to do now is again, just take a few moments silently to reflect on these truths, to reflect upon Christ's person, His priesthood, His propitiatory sacrifice for your sins. So, heads bowed, eyes closed, you just meet with the Lord and meet with Him over these truths.